0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast, presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter DeLaPena. We've got another eagle on board. i got to welcome Tom Dunmore. Tom, thank you for your support on Patreon and for everybody else out there who hasn't yet joined yet. There's some great benefits to being a patron on Patreon for the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. Thank everybody who has joined so far in the month of May. I encourage everybody, please... Subscribe on Patreon, show your support for the podcast, and show your support for Associate Cricket in general. Now, today's guest on the show is the first American-born woman to represent USA in 50-over cricket, Erica Rendler. Made her debut for USA in 2010 against Canada. And she's a late bloomer, to put it mildly. Discovered cricket at the age of 29. She made it into the national team just nine months After picking up a cricket bat for the first time. That just speaks to her athletic talent. Going to her background, growing up in San Jose, California... But first, I want to remind everybody that today's Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. Dream Cricket Academy offers private and group lessons for children of all ages. Multiple students of the Dream Cricket Academy have been selected to represent USA at Under-19 level, including Raymond Ramratan, Harisha Shwarya, and 2021 USA Under-19 National Championship Tournament MVP, Sai Mukamala, of the champion Mid-Atlantic squad. Dream Cricket Academy coaching staff is led by the head coach of the USA Under-19 National Championship Mid-Atlantic. Atlantic squad, Earl Daly, himself a former USA national team player. Dream Cricket has private lanes available for booking, as well as Bola bowling machines to use for optimized training. Dream Cricket Academy is located at 400 Apgar Drive in Somerset, New Jersey, just a mile off of Exit 12 on Interstate 287. For more information, call 908-938-3787 or email cricket at dreamcricket.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of texas for more information call 713-534-2195 that's moosa cricket stadium in Pearland, texas our guest today is the first american-born female to represent usa in 50 over cricket for the usa women's national team san jose california native erica Randler. welcome to the show
1: <laughs> hey welcome thanks for having me it's uh, great to see you after this long year
0: it has been a long year, yes, for everybody. <laughs> How has that long year been for you? What have you been doing to keep yourself busy, Erica?
1: Um, been nonstop working. Uh, I manage at a Trader Joe's, so we've we've never stopped. It's been keeping me busy and tons of virtual training with our cricket team and uh, a little bit of family time, just kind of keeping it simple for the last few months.
0: To kind of introduce some people to your background, I was watching a baseball game on the MLB.tv League Pass. I've got a season pass to watch every game online. And I was watching the Dodgers-Mariners game. Guy comes up for the Mariners named Mitch Haniger, And he comes up and hits a home run. And as they're talking about him, the Dodgers broadcasters are saying, Mitch Haniger from Archbishop Mitty High School.
1: That's
0: and, right. And the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of Archbishop Mitty is Erica Randler.
1: Yes, uh, you know, I ran into Mitch's uncle the other day at my store. Um, it's a tight knit community, and yeah, Archbishop Mitty just powerhouse production for athletes and just all around academics and like awesomeness in the Bay Area. Um, so it's really cool to have Mitch's name out there, and you know, other of the greats that I was lucky enough to even go to school with, like Kerry Walsh, you know, Olympic volleyball player, and Having Brandy Chastain still living in the area, the gold-winning soccer player. Uh, I drive by MIDI basically every day on my commute home from work, and I always just have those memories and that pride when I see the field hockey field and softball field driving by. Go Monarchs!
0: You mentioned some of the people, Kerry Walsh, three-time gold medalist in beach volleyball. Aaron Gordon, Drew Gordon, who played in the NBA. Brandy Chastain, of course, penalty kick hero for Team USA in the 1999 Women's FIFA World Cup. And yourself! <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's. Is, is there is there some sort of Hall of Fame in terms of the alumni who've who've come out of Midi who've gone on to represent either USA national teams or gone on to professional sports? Because I just went through a handful, and you mentioned some of those players as well, those athletes. But there's there's an extensive list. It goes well beyond that. I mean, there's it, an incredible tradition there.
1: You know, they do keep in touch with the alumni community. So there's like a quarterly publication that goes out. And I believe they wrote something up about me on one of our Scotland tours. I got a nice little write-up. And, yeah, we still keep in touch with a lot of the athletes and a lot of people I went to school with are teaching and coaching there now. Um, Justina Williams, who was the captain of our field hockey team when I was a freshman, she went on to play at Stanford She's now coaching there for the women's softball team. And I run into her at my store as well. I'm lucky at Trader Joe's. I get to see a lot of, a lot of my friends in the community just casually shopping. Um, but, yeah, they do have Hall of Fame. My uncle Amos Renler actually got inducted into the Hall of Fame for soccer at Archbishop Middy. Um So, it, yeah, it's great to just to keep in touch and keep those links going.
0: And you mentioned Kerry Walsh, Kerry Walsh Jennings. She's right around your age. And and you said you went to school with her. I mean, was she an elite athlete even at that point? Did you see that she could one day be going to the Olympics and, and representing the country in volleyball? Or, and what other sports did she play while she was at MIDI?
1: Oh, yeah. So we spotted her out in middle school, actually, through the Catholic school diocese. I went to St. Martin's kindergarten through eighth. She was at St. Mary's in Los Gatos. We saw her, I think, in fifth grade. Like, who is that Spider leg tall woman over there, a the tall girl at the time, and um, she was a powerhouse back then. You could just see that that X factor that she had. And going to MIDI with her, she always just had that professional yet humble demeanor. And you know, you would she was a junior when I was a freshman, so a couple of years age difference. I'm not that old yet, Peter, but. <laughs> Even just seeing her in the locker room and stuff, you still kind of got the chills that you were around like this great athlete. Um, She excelled in basketball as well, which I got to share a court with her when I was on the freshman team. But um, yeah, you could tell there was going to be magic there. And it was just wherever she chose to go to college or whatever avenue she was going to take. And I think it's awesome that like, women's beach volleyball, like provided another avenue for like volleyball athletes to go and market themselves and get a lot of opportunities too. So it's really cool and inspiring, especially now, like as, as an older athlete myself to see somebody like her still going strong. um, It's, it's just really inspirational and pick up a lot of good, like training techniques and mental strengthening exercises just from, from listening to her.
0: You threw basketball in there. You know about field hockey and softball. So you were a three-sport athlete at Mitty, and then you went on to play field hockey at the University of Cal Berkeley. What was your main sport growing up of those three? I mean, were you somebody who just played everything and excelled at everything, or was there one that you had a specific eye on and was your favorite growing up?
1: Yeah, I played it all. Um, I was actually, I was going to try to call my mom this morning. She's traveling back from Colorado, but I, I wanted to ask her, you know, what made you get me into so many sports? Cause she didn't play that many sports as a kid or an adult. And she signed me up for everything. I, gymnastics, swimming lessons with the red cross. You know, we went from polywog up to masters and basketball at the YMCA as a kid. And, Then I started T-ball, like in kindergarten, T-ball, baseball. Then I transitioned into softball in fifth grade um, because my mom had the insight that that's what I'd be playing in high school. So it was time to familiarize myself with that version of the baseball, softball. Um, And she really got us into so many awesome sports. And every summer we were out at sports camps and out of the house, um, So I thought softball was going to be my go to like starting in middle school. I was on traveling softball teams um, going around the country and around the state. There's a lot of big softball hubs in California, like in the in the valley area and Southern California and northern. So that was going to be my go to. And I played it in high school, got on the varsity team. But I, I don't know when I was introduced to field hockey my freshman year. I got picked for varsity as a freshman beginner and it was just so fresh and new to me and exciting. And all of a sudden I just wanted to focus all my energy on that. Um, So I I really went, I went into like almost two season field hockey, I think, where you could play like fall ball and then play field hockey. Um, And I ended up doing track, track and field at Archbishop Mitty for a couple of years as well. I dropped softball for the last two years. I got into track, so I was running all kinds of things. I was doing triple jump, long jump, shot put. They had me try out the 200. They had me try out the 800. I remember my best friend like vomited after we finished the race. It was just, but it was just cool to get all these things and just keep my body working in all these different ways. And field hockey proved to be a pretty good opportunity for me as I was able to start getting recruited by a couple of colleges, um, there's only there was only 3 Division 1 teams in California at that time being Stanford, UC Berkeley and UOP in Stockton. So I got to go on some recruiting trips, got to make a few decisions and you know film some videos, do your whole recruiting stuff. It was really exciting and yeah, I ended up signing on to go to UC Berkeley, go Bears and Man, yeah, the rest is almost history. It's just, yeah, being a college athlete, showing up to a new experience with all these teammates and friends just built around you just really kind of made my college experience what it was. And yeah, field hockey was the go-to until I discovered cricket years down the line.
0: Just for people not in the lingo, UOP, University of the Pacific in Stockton, uh, that, that's the other mm-hmm. school that would have been a field hockey option. Uh, they, yes, they've got division one sports athletics. What, it, what you said there, I, I find kind of fascinating and it kind of leads into your cricket journey is the fact that, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't appreciate in the U S cricket community in terms of trying to approach new players to recruit them into the game. Is that there's this mental block of sorts within the cricket community where a lot of administrators feel that athletes from other sports are incapable of learning cricket or any sport, for that matter, by a certain age. And if you haven't started by a certain age, well, then it's not worth bothering. You yourself just said you were playing softball for most of your life and you are only introduced to field hockey. When you got to high school, you only took went to field hockey seriously as getting into the freshman team and you made varsity. And then that wound up being your scholarship sport or or your sport that you were recruited for uh, to go to Cal Berkeley. and I, I just find that um, a very interesting kind of parallel to your cricket journey because again, you're somebody who didn't discover cricket until much, much later, yet, you had this very, very strong athletic foundation cultivated through so many other sports that you had played growing up, and the fact that since you had gone through this field hockey experience, where it was a sport that you you developed much later in your athletic career, there was no reason why you couldn't do the same with cricket. And you've done that. So with cricket, did did you feel like there there when you were going through the journey of learning cricket, did you draw on anything in particular from what you had gone through with field hockey and that transition and that approach, again, going into a new sport when you had been focused on something else for a significant part of your athletic journey?
1: You know, I had never thought about that until you asked, but I totally did. I totally did. And it It kind of boils down, I think, to like three things. It's like the new equipment. It's something like a novelty, like the field hockey stick. I remember when I saw it, it kind of looks like an umbrella, upside down umbrella hook. It's the weirdest thing. You can't hit it with the backside like you would in ice hockey or street hockey. And meeting the new friends was another big thing. And then getting on getting on board with a new sport where the bar is set at zero for you. Cause you're just starting. There's no expectations. There's no pressure. Anything you do is working your way up. And that's a complete parallel to my cricket introduction. It was like the equipment. What is this weird looking fraternity paddle? Like what is this thing? And what are these rules? Like how do I even watch this on TV? I got to go on the internet and type in weird passwords and delete the ads and I'm meeting just all these new friends that, you know, I never would have met in any other walk of my life. Um, and then I'm introducing myself to this sport that it's it's technically sound, it's physically challenging, it can be really fun. And so I just wanted to take it all in, you know, and just start learning every little bit I could. And I think the most enjoyable part in those beginning days, and even kind of now, because I, I still kind of give myself a little – a little healthy dose of naivety like around the sport that I know it's not my expertise, even at this time in my life. And some things are still new to me in my cricket journey. And it just makes it that much more fun because it's so fresh. And like whatever little victories I have, I can be really happy about it instead of just having all these expectations that I've set for myself that I need to achieve.
0: For people who aren't aware, you got into cricket in your late 20s you were on a trip to Australia, and my understanding is you were going there to visit your sister's future in-laws, that your sister married an Australian. You go to Australia to meet them, and it's just a family vacation, and then you stumble across cricket. Take us through that experience and exactly where you were, what part of Australia, and your first memory of cricket there, and, and what drew you into the game.
1: I don't know if it was Melbourne Zoo or like closer to the Sydney area, but we were out at the zoo and we had already finished seeing all the animals and stuff. And we were out there watching some guys play cricket. And I just started staring at it. And my brother-in-law, he's, he loves cricket and rugby's his number one love. Uh, ben Roxborough is my brother-in-law. But yeah, he knows about all the technique and the stats. He's got two brothers. They grew up in Bathurst. You know, they all, they played cricket on, domestic teams and they were able to play in their backyard and everything so he was just explaining it to me how the ball is going and how it's bouncing off the pitch and I just thought god that looks really neat and I think I can remember maybe seeing people at Stanford playing that or somebody back in California and it did it just seemed really scary there was a guy with a a helmet on like this cage over his face and this hard ball slinging right at him super fast and all I saw was that someone was just trying to protect themselves. I didn't really see like the nuances of the game or what you did to score or anything like that. It just seemed it just seemed like the strangest thing to me, but I thought I wanted to learn about it. Um and there's kind of a second part to my introduction to cricket. I it was after that trip that I I came home. It was like September of 2009, I think, and I was working, you know, my a legal job, pretty boring, steady legal job at the federal courts, and I just thought, God, I need to do something, you know. I, I want to get on a team sport, and I went on Craigslist, and I looked for, like, a softball team. I was looking – they have a lot of slow-pitch softball, they call it. You guys – everybody has it, I think. Um, and they're fun, casual leagues, you know. They call them beer leagues, actually, where you just – you play the game basically so you can go eat pizza and chug a couple pints. So I was in there looking for a beer league softball team, and I happened to see a cricket ad put out by Raj Potty, um coach in the Bay Area. And I responded to the ad. I thought, well, God, this looks this looks cool. I'll try this out and. You know, we know how enthusiastic and driven Raj is about cricket. He responded, I think, the next hour, and I, I met with him that week for a practice at Stanford and and just started really getting into it. He was really excited about it, and he took me through a couple drills. I think he saw that I had, you know, some hand-eye coordination. I could catch the ball, and um, we just kind of went full speed ahead there with whatever was in place at that time with club cricket and kind of piggybacking onto the uh, local like um, club men's team and starting to form a women's team so that was kind of the beginning and then you know lots of things happened after that
0: Raj Potti, again for people who aren't aware at the time he was a, a USA Cricket Association administrator he was one of the board members representing the West Coast region and so he was in a role with USACA where he could be of influence to reach out and help people and coordinate things and he did that for you getting you involved in in cricket this happened you said in September 2009 less than a year later you're making your USA debut July 2010 in Canada against Canada is when you made it into the first 11 for USA playing in what was a head-to-head qualifier for the right to represent USA in the region heading to the World Cup qualifier in Bangladesh the following year so in the course of that I guess nine months learning the game from scratch essentially did you have like a a long-term ambition or I mean were you thinking big picture in terms of like I want to play for USA or was it simply a matter of like you said going on Craigslist and just wanted to pick up a sport for fun (laughs)
1: Yeah, man, that that was all just such a trip that whole year. Um, No, I never had any intentions of anything serious coming out of this. Um, It was all for fun. I was meeting a lot of new friends. We had our team, the Firebirds was our club team under the Bay Area Cricket Association in California, BACA. And so we were having a fun time. We'd go to practice. We'd all go out to eat lunch. You know, we were becoming friends, and it was this whole, like, life enrichment experience for me. And I never even once thought about Team USA or making this serious. I just thought it's a fun thing to do on the weekends. I'm learning. Uh, it's kind of this novelty, and it gives me something cool to talk about now if I'm at a party instead of just saying, oh, I'm, I'm a paralegal or whatever. But I, I think it wasn't until we started that year, was it 2010, we actually had a national a national tournament held in Cupertino, California, I believe. I'm sure you have the stats on that. Um, I don't.
0: Everything off the old USACA website has basically been deleted. So there's no record <laughs> of your existence in that event. I do remember off memory there was one, yes, but it'd be hard to find the stats from that event nowadays. <laughs> but go on.
1: But yeah, so we had. I think we had this nat- national tournament in Cupertino at this library, and there was a natural uh, turf wicket. And I remember going there with the Firebirds and, you know, the mayor was there. They were doing a ribbon cutting ceremony and, you know, they had a reception and everyone's in fancy clothes. And I th- I thought, huh, this is kind of a big deal, I guess. And teams were flying in from New York and I think God, three or four teams. And that's when I met Indomati and like Monique Mathy and Joan Serrano, you know, all the greats of like the first generation of USA cricket. And. And I thought, God, these these girls are serious about this. And there's all kinds of style of play going here and talk on the field. And at that tournament, I got the best fielding award, which that was my MO in the starting days of my cricket career. It's like, you're a fielder. That's what you can do. You need to excel at that. Um, And, I, yeah, I think they made a selection shortly thereafter. And I was an alternate on the list. And I remember Bushra Ali was the selected woman whose place I took I think because her eligibility um, wasn't good at that time. She was a really good, I think, all rounder bowler. But yeah, I'll always remember that person because that's the spot I got to take, and I got that call or that email, and I just was like, oh my god, <laughs> like I'm going to Canada. This, I'm putting on this jersey. It's just unbelievable, and I, and I was so thrilled. And I, I think at that point in time, I caught the bug for this cricket. This USA thing, and I wanted to take it a little more seriously, and and, and that was the start of it. And I think we went to New York for a training camp, and that's the first time I met you outside of that hotel, doing the interview outside on that bench. Um,
0: I think it was the JFK Hilton was the hotel. that.
1: That's right. High class, you know, (laughs) all the way.
0: (laughs) One of the things you mentioned, I want to go into that story. There's, There's a very interesting part of that story, how I met you that I wanted to go into but going back before that you mentioned getting the best fielding award and again this is a part of the cricket myth and and the cricket's stereotyping of people from who are deeply entrenched in the game who think that introducing the sport to Americans is impossible especially adults you know if you're going to introduce it you got to get them young because once they're adults it's beyond the point of no return and they're not going to be able to learn and one of the, the stereotypes that's constantly brought up that irritates the hell out of me, and I'm sure you've—it's something that probably grates with you too—you won the best fielding award, and there's this misconception about oh well, people who grow up playing softball or baseball—they're used to fielding with a glove, and how on earth are they going to be able to learn to field with their bare hands? And what's lost in that is that there's so many technical principles that you learn in baseball and softball and other sports in terms of fielding with, from a technical standpoint, getting your body into the right position, getting your hands into the right position so that your hands can be soft and you're cushioning the ball when you you field it or receive it, not locking your elbows or not letting your elbows get too tight into your body because then your hands will get hard and all sorts of those things. You take for granted growing up, learning to play a lot of American sports, and it just so happens that you're doing these things with a glove on, but it doesn't mean that you're incapable of doing them without a glove. And you've proven that. What was it like for you making the transition into a sport where you're not wearing a glove and everybody is trying to tell you from the outside, oh, no, no, you're not going to be able to do it because you've been fielding with a glove all your life. Let's see what you can do.
1: Yeah. Um. Luckily, no one was saying that to me. Like, I think I was able to show them. I I was able to do it right away. But I think, like you were saying, a lot of the techniques and the approach to it, it's all the same. Um. Like the split stem, split stance that you get into, the way you charge at a ball to like cut off. You know, field in in baseball or softball, you want to cut off that half volley and get the ball before it bites you. You know, get your body in front of it, sacrifice yourself. We used to play with you know raw eggs just to practice the soft hands throwing it back or water balloons during the summer so I think it's really all the same thing and this is this isn't softball
0: training you're talking about you would train with yeah
1: it's in softball training and and you know even in softball with the glove on I would still come home with bruises on my hands there were some people who could just gun the ball so fast you're still feeling that sting in your hand um So I think with cricket, it's kind of just you're building up those calluses on your bare hands because, you know, it stings. It it still stings some days on a cold day when you're taking a high catch. But I think it's just getting used to you're using the same mechanics. Um, In some ways, some people could even argue it's easier. I think I saw one of your articles or forwards about that. Um, But if in terms of general fielding technique, I think it's a complete crossover between cricket and softball where you're it's the same mechanics it's the same way your body's approaching the ball the way your eyes are looking at it in front of you the way your hands are and elbows are absorbing it's all the same mechanics so I think it's just kind of used to catching with your bare hands getting over that mental fear you know making sure you don't get your fingers in the way um but it is funny though, I went to a baseball game recently and like Americans, they can't really catch the ball with their bare hands in the foul ball territory. Like you see people with their beer and their soda and their baby and the ball's dropping all over and you watch a cricket match, you got this bloke out in, you know, center field and he's sitting down with a beer and he'll just catch it like that. No problem. So I do, I do know that the cricketers and people with the cricket background seem just to be able to catch things a little easier, but. That being said, you know, I've I've tried on Sin's wicket gloves, wicket keeping gloves, and I can't I don't know how to maneuver those. I mean, I'm an expert with a baseball glove, but I can't catch with keeping gloves. So I think it's just learning a new piece of equipment and your hands are the equipment in cricket. It's just kind of dialing in how that connects with your brain and your body's actions.
0: Now I want to go into the story of, of how we met, but first I want to remind everybody that today's show on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is brought to you by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Road 288, half hour south of downtown Houston. Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms, change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Aside from the main turf stadium ground, there's now a second ground at the facility open for use. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas, the original turf wicket facility in Texas. How did I come to write an article about you and, and what was the impetus to interviewing you? I actually was asked to go to the ground that day. I wasn't entirely aware that there was a women's training camp going on in New York. wasn't very well publicized. But I got a call from an administrator in the Atlantic region who said, Peter is a woman representing USA at this camp from the region named Pauline Williams. And... We're hoping to help promote the region and, and Pauline's going to be there and we'd like for you to go out there and, and see if you could write something about her. And so I was like, all right, I'll go. I never really seen women's cricket in the U.S. So I was curious from that standpoint to see what the team was comprised of talent wise. And I get out there and I go to find Pauline and introduce myself and there's a big commotion going on. Because Pauline is in a heated conversation with Durga Das and Indomati Gordial John, who is the captain and, and the player coach. Pauline kind of storms off in a huff. And I said, Pauline, um, Peter Del Pen, I'd like to interview you. And she says, not today. Not today. I don't, I don't want to talk. And you can talk to my husband. And I, I said, well, who's your husband? You, talk to him. And it's Kenwin Williams, the one and only Kenwin Williams. Is in a in a car waiting to drive his wife away. And I said, "Well, I want to talk to you. I'm not here to interview your husband. Your husband's not playing for the women's national team. You're playing for the women's national team. I want to talk to you. I, I don't want to talk today. I, I'm not in the mood. I, I I'm I'm not in the right frame of mind. I don't want to talk. Like okay, fine, fair enough. And I thought, well, I didn't just drive out here for nothing. I'll stay out here and and see what else I can discover. And I'm watching the training session and. I see you out in the field and I go oh this is been interesting and I I ask you know who is who is this player Erica that they they keep shouting Erica I say oh yeah she she's just 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 gotten into the game brand new so where is she from california so she's so she's american born she's american race yeah oh this is interesting and so I'm, I'm watching you and and one of the things that i found fascinating about watching you then and even now to a certain extent your game has developed dramatically over the years but even still today and going back to then you looked like you were fighting against your natural instincts because you were so determined to fit in by proving to everybody that you could play with a straight bat and you could do the proper technical things that cricketers pride themselves on. When in reality, I don't think there's anybody who can hit the ball as hard as you on the women's team. And I don't think there's anybody who can hit the ball as far as you on the women's team. Maybe Shabani Bosker. You're definitely the two strongest hitters of the cricket ball on the team. But I'm thinking to myself, why is Erica messing around trying to show everybody she can play a forward defense when she should be going out there and smashing sixes? I just, I'm curious, you know, as you're learning the game, is this a mental battle that you've been waging with yourself from the start and, and through your career in terms of trying to show the cricket evaluators that you can do quote, unquote traditional cricket things versus just going out there and not to use a, I hate using this cricket cliche, play your natural game, but you know, just to go out there and show people that you can do something in terms of power hitting and hitting sixes and just natural ball striking that you've cultivated through these other sports athletically that you bring to cricket that a hell of a lot of other players in the team, they just don't have that skill set. So how, how is this development gone through, through your mind mentally and applying that physically to your stroke play?
1: Yeah, that I'm just laughing because it's, that is what's going through my head. And it's, you know, I know it's important to offer the straight bat to, to be able to hold your wicket and, and stay there so that you can get the power opportunities. But I wish I knew back then kind of what my mindset is now that I do bring that value to the team and the strength and power and that that's something unique I can provide and that nobody's coming to see a, a technical clinic on my batting. <laughs> um, and, and, and I wish I would have unleashed that tiger like so many years earlier. Um, but to answer your question, I do. I think about it all the time. I think even at a practice two weeks ago, all I could think about is, oh, is is my top hand holding the bat right? You know, do I have my shoulder dipped? Is am I sticking my neck out? And I, you know, and I I work. I I train mentally just to try and get in that zone where I'm not worrying about all the technique, and I find that to be kind of a thing with cricket that there's just infinite technique and in critique and way you know I've had I think every coach I meet whether they're my coach or it's just some guy who decided to come up and coach me unsolicited they'll all tell me oh you're holding the bat wrong or your angle here or the you know fourth stump and this is an Indian style or this is Australian style and so I think that struggle to find your identity of what type of player you are and, and what you want to bring, you know, as cricket is just, it's such a highly individualized team sport. Um, so it's just, it's constantly challenging and that's something I've been lucky to, to work on in the last couple of seasons. I think, um, like having JP, Julia price come into the program and, you know, elevate me up the order for the T20 T20 format and, and kind of help me identify what kind of player I am in the mix of the team and how I can complement a more technical player like, like Sindhu um, and that we need that. We need that diversity on the squad and the different skill sets to complement ticking a score up. Um, so it's, it's something I'm, I'm always working on. It's something I pride myself in. But yeah, that little bug about the technique and how you're holding the bat, it's it's constantly there. And I don't think, especially at this age, it's ever going to go away and just become the second nature thing. It's, you know, it's always there.
0: There are so many different ways to achieve the same outcome. And, you know, there's, there's this story way back when of Don Bradman averaging 99.94 and, Some English school coach said, well, just imagine if Don Bradman had held the bat the right way, how many runs he could have scored. (laughs) And, you know... Uh, This this insistence or inflexibility from a lot of coaches that, no, only this way is the right way, rather than seeing what somebody's strengths are and tailoring the coaching to that specific player. Do you feel that external pressure just almost, again, from a a social sense that in order to fit in with the cricket community, you feel like you need to resort to these uh, training methods or even out in the middle of a match that you need to demonstrate these kind of things?
1: You know, I I don't feel it as much anymore, but it def it took a few things to get there. I mean, it took a couple good knocks in games that mattered to get that feeling. Um, and you know, at at first, I I really did I felt that pressure. You know, you're coming into this environment where everybody else they either played since they were a kid, they have like uh, this whole identity behind cricket, what it means to them, and you know, that could be a whole nother podcast for us, just talking about how important cricket is to everyone's life. And it's this how it encompasses your whole life, really, once you get into it. But um, yeah, I did. I felt that at first, I was tired of kind of being called the softball convert. And you know, it's this American softball convert. And I'm thinking, I haven't really played softball since I was 16. You know, I I moved on to hockey, I, I play every sport. and And basically, like, don't limit me to that. I'm I'm ready to pick anything up and try it once. I think that's just kind of what I do. I can pick things up pretty quick. And if I decide to take something seriously or find some kind of mysterious discipline to actually focus on something, I like to go all for it. But yeah, that pressure was on in the beginning to kind of establish that I belong here and, you know, I'm worth being here and I'm not just some token person that needs to, to fill a slot on some roster and, a lot of that was, all of that was just brought on by myself, you know, and my own self-criticisms or my sense of awareness of who I was on the squad. Um, And yeah, being able to unleash all your tools, like within a competitive space, I mean, it's, it's a real skill to have. And I just think, yeah, the last few seasons, I was really able to kind of let go of that need to prove myself, continually prove myself and just kind of enjoy the skills I have and really try to execute them. Um, But all that being said, we work on technique all the time, especially in the preseason when we have time. And, you know, you still got to learn your ABCs before you go out and start talking. And so I'm, I'm not above the technique. I'm not above training for it. And it's, it's good to still practice it so that maybe I can implement, you know, a few percentages of that into, into a situation that matters.
0: Now, your debut, July 14th, 2010. Some parts of the world, that would be known as Bastille Day. But in Canada, it was just the day that you made your debut for USA at the Maple Leaf Cricket Ground. USA beat Canada that day by nine wickets, bowled them out for 135, and then chased Target in 39 overs for just the loss of one wicket. What do you remember about your debut?
1: Wow, I mean, it's... It was just such a cool experience. I mean, to get paid to get on an airplane to go to Canada and to tell my boss, sorry, I can't be at work this week. I'm going to play for Team USA. I mean, that alone was enough. Even if I had never hit the field, it was such a good experience for my life at that point. Um, I mean, I remember so many things. The personalities we had on that team, the leadership, the experience that we had. You know, I think at that time we were carrying players who were in their maybe in their forties and fifties at that time and but I think we that was the kind of experience and strength that we needed and having people on the sidelines yell out, you know you're an ambassador for the country and this is history and the future is coming and waving the flag and just all of it was just it's just all those moments um I remember the the fielding grounds being so beautiful I think it was I don't know if it was maple leaf cricket ground, um, but yeah, just seeing the awesome pitch that we were playing on that I hadn't really seen anything like that before. And I think for a lot of the games, I was like 12th man or 13th man running water. I bring, I always bring my little point and shoot camera. So I'm sneaking photos on the sidelines and I just, I always find that really important. I'm like, if I don't document this, who's going to do it? You know, if Peter's not out here with this Hawaiian shirt and floppy hat, you know, <laughs> This is something that I may be one of the only eyewitnesses to. And yeah, I just remember the energy really, you know, I want to say like a strong Caribbean energy at that time on the team. Really vocal people, like such good vibes and dancing and cheering. And yeah, it's, and I remember going out there, I think towards the end of the game, maybe I came out to bat last or something, and I was partnered up with Nadia. Nadia Gruni, and we're still two newbies on the team kind of. And I just remember, I think we were running. She's all dive, dive. And like, we're just giving it our all. I don't know if I faced four balls or what I even did, but just to get out there and me and Nadia were out there and, and you know, seeing other other batters on the team have some incredible performances like Monique Mathy, the left-handed um, South African opener that we had, got a 50 in one of the matches, and, you know, I think Rohini Prabhuni she took like a three or four wicket haul, got man of the match, there's just some really cool things that happened, and I also broke my thumb on that tour, I was trying to take a boundary catch, uh, Michaela Turek on the Canadian team, I think she was born in Australia, yeah. she's like a tall Canadian batter, and I went up for the catch, and I, the ball just, you could still kind of see the, the thumb is never the same, but... So I had this kind of broken thumb and I remember during the game, I was like biting my arm to displace the pain. And, you know, I didn't know it was broken at the time. I stayed in, finished the game, finished the whole tour. Actually, I never got medical treatment until I came home, but, but yeah, there's just so many awesome memories. And yeah, I, I, I still can see like the bite marks on my arm from when I was trying to just bite through my forearm. So I wouldn't feel that pain in my thumb. And, and being able to shout out like USA with all these girls that I just met like a week ago, and it's just this whirlwind like awesome experience.
0: On your debut match, yeah, you won by nine wickets. USA won by nine wickets. You you that you didn't bat. It was the a couple of days later in the, one of the T20 matches that were. Not quite an exhibition, but there was nothing at stake. It was the 50-over matches where the context was in terms of who was going to qualify. And then there was a couple T20s that were laid out afterwards. So it was in the T20, you made your batting debut where you scored three off four balls. Yes, you remember four balls you faced. You batted with Nadia Gruni, and you came in at number nine, finished not out, three not out off four balls. You mentioned the social aspects of, of being there, being in a new cricket culture community, and it was heavily... Caribbean dominated. And I wanted to ask you about that, just the social aspects of being on tour as the only American-born player on the team, the only American-raised player in the team at that point in time. That can be, whether it's at club cricket level, regional cricket level, or national cricket level, that kind of atmosphere can be very intimidating for a lot of people to enter into. And depending on who the characters are involved, they're Sometimes can be some very strong personalities in these environments, and it's not always the easiest transition. Sometimes it's a very smooth transition and teams can be very welcoming and other times not so much. What was your experience from that standpoint in terms of the training camp in New York and then the tour itself? How was your adjustment to the USA national team environment taken into consideration? The fact that you're the only player on the team who's been born and brought up in America at that point in time
1: it was just so awesome and like eye opening and you know so healthy for me as you know what I you know i am i'm you know i'm a i could say i guess white middle class privileged american and i just consider myself so lucky to have been able to meet so many people from all walks of life um it it can be intimidating too you know you're not you're not there with your buddies. I didn't have any friends. Uh, I, I did have a player from my Firebirds team, Rajasri Kulkarni, whom, whom I knew. And she's, you know, great player, a little bit quiet, quietly spoken. Um, but yeah, I kind of clicked right away with Monique Matthew, and we actually got paired up as roommates and we were kind of laughing with each other like, oh, is this because we're like the two white girls on the team or, you know, and so we were getting a real kick out of that. And you know, but the unifying thing is just everybody's love for the game and like soon enough I was just welcomed by everybody and you know, they could be a little tough with me. It's like, yeah, who's this new girl? She can't hold a bat, what's she doing? And a little bit of tough love and and I didn't come in with this ego thinking that, oh, I deserve to be out there in the plane eleven or I need to be up the order. I was very humbled by it and just eyes and ears open, like soaking up whatever, whatever I could from watching everybody playing. And especially with like Indomati, like a player like that, who just, she showed up. I remember with like a Nike brand cricket bat and I thought, Oh, cool. I didn't know Nike made bats or, or put their stickers on a bat that someone else made. I just thought that's really cool. And I like the style she plays and she's got kind of this swagger. And I thought, yeah, I'm just going to learn everything I can from everybody and, Meet some cool friends and just enjoy something that was formerly out of my comfort zone.
0: You kind of mentioned it half-jokingly about, you know, who is this girl? Where does she come from? How does she just walk into the team? Why, you know, how is she opening the batting? But on on a serious note, there is some element of jealousy that I've observed, not necessarily with you, but in, in other places where. There can be instances where somebody's new to the game and they're supremely athletically gifted because they played all sorts of other sports growing up. And they get into a team and have an opportunity to perform and they start performing right away. And it's not they're not like you said, you, you referred to yourself, uh, you know, do I think of myself as a token player? They're not a token player. They're there on merit. They're performing. And yet it breeds almost a sense of jealousy at times with, like you said, players who've been playing this game their entire lives. Some of them. And they've devoted 20, 25, 30, 35 years to the sport, maximizing all their time, all their effort. And they can't achieve the same output as somebody who is literally just picked up a bat for the first time nine months earlier. Did you feel any sense of that in your early days in the team, even progressing a bit further, going to that first, I guess, overseas tour, going to Bangladesh? where there was any sense of resentment or jealousy with people around the squad, whether they were on the touring squad itself or people in the tryout phase in a broader squad camp who kind of looked across the boundary and and thought, well, this isn't right. i put in all my time and effort. I've put in all these years and now I'm being passed over for somebody who's just picked up the game and and they're getting an opportunity that that I feel should be mine. Or, you know, my opportunity has been stolen by somebody who's Who's just walked in?
1: yeah, I you know, I don't think I really felt that. And if it was out there, maybe I didn't hear the whispers behind the doors, but no, I found you know, I think whatever of that that I might have felt, I brought on by my on my own. like I'm my biggest critic, and I felt I put upon myself that, oh, you need to put your time in, and this is kind of a seniority loyalty thing, and you need to respect these folks who have you know excelled in this sport in their home country you know been played on national teams and you know youth squads and they have this knowledge and leadership and I kind of threw that on myself that you need to kind of stay quiet work your way up the ranks maybe that's just kind of like a survival mechanism I have and no at that time I don't think anyone was jealous of what I was doing because I wasn't really putting up any stats that would be jealous worthy Um, What I may suspect, I'm assuming maybe some people were kind of jealous of the attention I was getting for it. Um, Like It kind of seemed like I was getting a lot of media attention just because it was like a a unique thing in USA cricket. Um, And again, that could be something I'm just bringing upon myself. But it did seem like I was getting a lot of attention in their first few years. Um, Like in Bangladesh, the BBC interviewed me I'm still looking for that video somewhere. I don't know if they ever aired it, but God, I would love to see myself talking with a little BBC stamp on the bottom. Um, And and yeah, I got that great article from you, you know, the rapid ascent into U.S. women's cricket. Um, So I was, you know, I was feeling pretty good and very aware of, okay, you're getting some attention for this, you know, stay humble. Don't let this get to your head because that's the last thing I wanted to create was that, we already had so many differences between me and everyone else. Let's not create more by having an ego and an attitude about it.
0: Now, going to that first overseas tour, the Women's World Cup qualifier, in 2011, November 2011, the first match of the tournament that USA played was against South Africa, at the time captained by Mignon Dupree, featuring Van Nykirk, Marizon Cap among others. USA lost quite heavily in that match, 198 runs. South Africa made 343 for 5 in their 50 overs. USA finished on 145 for 9, but on your bowling debut, none for 36 and 7 overs, quite respectable figures in the context of the rest of the team. Looking at it a bit further, you were the most economical bowler on the day for USA. USA used 7 bowlers. And then batting-wise, coming in at number 8, you finished 26 not out, off 51 balls, 5 boundaries. Was that the day that you truly felt like you belonged at international level playing for USA, or is there some other moment you can pinpoint where you really got a big confidence boost and really felt at ease and like you truly belonged?
1: That was a big day for me. I I still remember that feeling sitting in the bus after the game and I took a picture of the scorecard on my cell phone. I actually have it here in this little book that I made. I'll have to show you sometime, but I had never felt so good in my life. I think that was the best feeling I had ever had. And sure, I was what 26 off 39, or uh, no, 26 runs off 52 balls in 39 minutes, but not out and you know at that time my goal in my training with Raj my coach was just to bat not out that's your goal especially in 50 over cricket with a fairly new team you got to get through the overs bat not out and yeah i remember going out there and our coach Robin Singh he i think he told me take an off stump stance i'd never done that before um and the south africans they were playing so short on me. There was a silly point. There were three fielders just like five feet away from me, just sledging the hell out of me. And, you know, oh, you're the only American. And uh, how are you liking that stipend? How are you liking that $100 a day? Let's see if you can hit the ball. And, you know, it, it was actually kind of relaxing me. I was laughing. And, um, yeah, I just remember, I think it was Joan, Joan Serrano hit she top scored that game and, but to be in like the top three scorers with Joan Serrano, Durga Das, then Erica Renler, you know, scoring in the twenties, which those are big scores for us back then. I know it's small potatoes in the world of cricket, but for me, that was like getting a 50. Like that was like, Oh my word. And yeah, it, I, I didn't... God, I felt so good. It was just so awesome, and I was just so glad. It felt like I just really did something, and I always remember that game. Like, that was just one of the defining moments of my cricket career. It was amazing.
0: One of the other things you touched on there that I think some people may have forgotten about, the sledging, specifically the sledging about the siphons. are you enjoying your $100 siphon? Prior to that tour, there was quite a big controversy... With regards to the team that was actually going to be sent to Bangladesh, because there was a warm up tour, and then basically nine or ten out of the players who were on that tour, who were being targeted as the core members of the squad, wound up staging a boycott and a protest over match fees and stipends that they felt there was unequal treatment between the women's players and the men's players with regards to. The amount of stipends that were being paid, especially since there was a $100,000 donation given by a benefactor named John Warburg that was earmarked specifically for the women's cricket team. And I think some people involved with the women's squad were wondering, well, where the hell did all this money go that was supposed to be earmarked for us? And why are you crying poor and claiming you don't have money to pay us? So quite a significant number of players dropped out of the touring squad you stayed in and yet here we find out it was used as cannon fodder by the opposition to sled <laughs> you guys and yet you you were steeled mentally enough to not let it affect you and keep batting until the end
1: so how the heck did they find out about that all the way in South Africa but man all i can say is i would have i would have paid to go on that trip it was such a blessing and an opportunity and Yeah. Sometimes I still wonder how we would have done had we kept that roster of of talent who opted not to go. But this is the way it went. And I'm just so proud of all the players that went, especially the handful of us that are still on the training squad right now today. It's I can look at them and just say, wow, we've we went from there to here. And it's like we're we're totally different people now. But we'll you know, it's like we went from being young adults to adults or older adults and. Yeah, it was Bangladesh was something else. It was such an amazing experience. But yeah, that's super funny that they were sledging with that. It's just another one of the sidebars of of the whole experience where you you don't even remember the score of the game, but I'm always gonna remember something like that.
0: There was a letter that was sent by Martin Vieira, who was the the head administrator for the Americas region, ICC Americas, basically scolding Usaka, saying we can't afford to have a B side. Send to a World Cup qualifier and and be subject to embarrassment. The region needs to send its best team, so you better send your best players. And, yeah, I think one of the the questions people always have to this day is wonder what could have happened if USA sent a full-strength squad there because USA, even with the players that were there, less than than full-strength, you ladies beat Zimbabwe, a full-member nation in that event, and potentially could have won... uh, more games, or at least challenged, pushed some of these teams a bit harder than was the case. And I think instead of looking at the Zimbabwe win, there was a hell of a lot more attention paid on the ICC administrative side to the five very, very heavy losses that the USA team suffered. And then subsequently, when Canada represented the region in that coming out of T20 qualifying the following spring in Cayman Islands. There was the tournament there where Canada and USA both finished undefeated on four wins, but the Canada USA match was saved for the finale and it wound up being rained out. And so Canada was awarded the, the T20 qualifying berth from the region based on net run rate. And they again, very similarly Canada did not represent the region well at, at a global stage. So the ICC Americas used those incidents and really significantly used the incident with the, the player boycott, player protest, not having a full strength USA squad going to Bangladesh as justification in part for not continuing with the Americas and telling the administrators you need to focus on your domestic development, grassroots, developing your local talent depth, increasing your squad strength so that you're not in a position where that if you do run into a similar situation and you're just having to send a quote-unquote B squad, it's not going to be a group of players that are going to get heavily beaten in a significant number of matches. But instead of taking that advice and, and heeding it and using it as instructions to develop cricket in the region, basically everything went stagnant for four years. Nothing happened, and it wasn't until the ICC Americas group came in in 2015, 2016, you had the MCC tour to Philadelphia. The ladies got to play in Philadelphia against the MCC squad uh, with Charlotte Edwards and Claire Taylor. And then USA was readmitted to represent the region, uh, going to a, kind of a combined ICC Americas slash Europe qualifier when you went to Sterling, in Scotland in, in 2017 to play against Scotland and, and the Netherlands. So that kind of four or five year gap where n- nothing was offered in terms of a qualification event for the Americas region, having gone through that whole player boycott over the stipend experience and that, that whole saga and being part of the squad that was in Bangladesh and then the after effects uh, that trickled down afterwards over the course of the, the next four years, did you feel like the ICC was justified and did you understand their stance over why they removed that berth and the actions that led to it? and And how do you feel? it impacted not just the team, but you personally, because those were four prime years of your career that were essentially taken away.
1: Yeah, that's... hmm. I actually... I didn't know that that's why the ICC made that decision, so I don't really have any feelings on that because I didn't know. And all I do know is just in general life, if you're always asking for more, it's never going to be enough. So, like, if you think you need to get paid more at work there's never this magical number that's going to make it worth your time if it's not important enough to you. So I think a lot of us put that, that memory behind us. I kind of chalked it up as another part of this fascinating story that I've been involved in. And God, just I'm remembering all the conference calls we had to set up just to discuss that whole issue and I think most of the time I was in my brother's backyard just drinking some rum that I got in Barbados at the training camp just to d- deal with the call. I was just sitting there listening, not really participating and kind of wondering, why is this such a big deal for some people? Like, this is like, it's so special for me. I would Again, I would pay to do this. But, you know, now that I'm not such a juvenile in, in the sport, I, I agree, like, Sure, in a perfect world, we would all quit our jobs, go to some training facility, live there, train every day, like eat meals together, and like there's so many things in a perfect world with an unlimited budget that could help make like an awesome team and and get results right away um, and during that five year break, I don't know, I think we all just got along with our lives. There was probably some domestic tournaments, like privately held, probably the Atlanta thing with pedal and New York tournaments with Joan. And so we were all still trying to have fun and just keep playing cricket and stay in touch with each other. And I don't know, the years go by pretty fast. so A lot of it kind of blurs together for me now, but I try not to look at it as this lost time or what could have been. And like everything I get out of cricket, even to this day, it's all just just a a win for me. And it's, it's all more than I ever expected to get from a sport anyways. Um, So I try to keep myself out of that whole line of thinking of what could have been, or what more do I need? It's kind of like, okay, what, what can I give to this sport or what can I do to help? And I trust the decision-making powers to, to try and do the right thing. And I think we're we're clearly heading on that path Like as we currently work our way out of this pandemic and start launching more exciting things coming through. So we'll see.
0: You've gained a hell of a lot of match experience basically in that kind of second half of your career, if you want to use that four-year gap as a cutoff point. Prior to that, you had only played eight matches for USA, and those were all in that 2010-2011 time frame. Since then... If you take the MCC tour as the next phase, you've almost played twice as many matches from 2016 to 2019 for USA. So you've you've gotten a lot more match experience, but then training-wise, developmentally, I mean, how has your game progressed from your perspective? And how do you see USA's chances and the way the squad is taking shape going forward for the T20 qualifier coming up and the 50-over qualifier under the direction of Julia Price?
1: Yeah, for me, it's it's progressed into more of a specifically having a plan as to what I'm doing, um, which is a lot different than when I first started in the game. It was, re- it was really a novelty, and honestly, for me, just being there was cool enough. I was just so stoked on being there, representing, and now it's like, okay, I want more from that. I know I can do more. We've got the resources in place. Um, And to have a coach like JP, who is so closely connected to contemporary women's cricket and high-level women's cricket in the world, that's something we've never had in our coaching staff here in the USA. And that's something that we really need to be relevant in the women's sporting space. So to get the wealth of knowledge that she's brought onto our team and not only that but the ability to like intuitively handle so many different personalities and age ranges and different goals and and why's as to why we're even here it's just been groundbreaking i think and um i think like the world has yet to see like the effect that that Julia Price has had on this team but it is happening in the backgrounds and it's happening right now as we speak so our preparation is going pretty strong. Like I said earlier, we did a lot of uh, virtual training over the pandemic, um, which was pretty intense at times, a lot of educational aspects, mental health aspects, reading, comprehension, participating, making videos. and um, the strength and training has really ramped up um, with Bert Cockley behind that. Um, we're doing you know world class preparation and all the things are in place. It's just a matter of getting everybody to do it. Um, Trying to think, I mean, it is hard to go virtual. I mean, believe me, last year was really, I mean, it sucked for everybody, not, you know, for everybody in any walk of life. It was, it was terrible, but I think we all learned a little bit of what our priorities are and what we really want in life. And, I know I had to personally have some conversations with myself. Like, are, are you in this? Are you ready to go? Because you're not going to half-ass this. You either need to go full forward or, or that's it. And um, and it's challenging, and I had to have conversations with myself because I, I had kind of thought, oh, hey, I'll go to Sri Lanka. Maybe I'll go to a vacation after that, and that'd be a great way to end off my cricket career. Well, we never got that, And, and here I am. I turned 40 in September last year and here we are like just waiting for the next opportunity and so yeah I think we've all had to have real hard talks with ourselves maybe with our families with our employers just identifying what's important for us and and what we're going to give to this team with what Pricey's bringing, getting our IPPs in place, like our performance plans, knowing what we need to do to improve, having so much more data involved now that's being tracked and that we can use for our strength and conditioning, um, I think I think we're gonna fare pretty well. I think, especially starting first with the T20. I I know we're ready to go in there and bash. And like, I see videos of other teams training. I know Brazil's playing a lot. They seem to have a lot of momentum down there. They seem to be having fun. And I'm just really excited for us all to get back on the fields and like keep playing. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm still pretty thrilled from beating Canada last time in Florida at the, um, at the qualifiers. That was, that was probably the second greatest moment of my cricketing career was getting player of the match, uh, the game that I batted with Sugi and we batted all the way through. And, um, so yeah, there's a lot of just good momentum, but we, we definitely respect like the opponents out there. We know what's, what we have up against us. And I think it'll be good once we get out of this whole everything's theoretical and we actually get to hit the field and, and start doing some things together, which is, which is coming up real soon with like intra-regionals and regional tournaments. So so, yeah, we're ready to kick it into high gear with our season.
0: Interregionals, those are supposed to start up in June, from my understanding. What is your outlook on on having that competition beginning?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited. I think it's a great opportunity to get everyone together and to expose the sport also to new people in the region. And the one thing that's really lacking, I think, is like women's club cricket around the nation, like. Not every player wants to play and be super serious about it and go to the national team. So if these types of events can expose other players, generate more participation and give people an avenue to get into the game, like in any type of respect, that'll be good. And it's always good to see all my um, teammates and like be competing in in a place where it matters. And I think that's where you catch... Like people's better performances when the the pressure is on and and it's a meaningful space rather than maybe just doing something because you have to do it or going to practice just to knock something out. Um, it's good stuff that's coming up and yeah, I wish we could have done it last year and any other time, but I think it's exciting to move forward with this momentum and these kind of plans.
0: One of the other things you mentioned is you just turned 40 last year and. You were looking at maybe eyeing that Sri Lanka tour as as your swan song and then signing off on the national team. You don't have a lot of mileage and a lot of wear and tear on your legs and on your body. Again, it's not just the four-year gap where there was no national team cricket. You started playing for USA at 29. You don't have 20 years of of wear and tear cricket-wise. You're still relatively fresh to the sport in terms of the physical toll. Realistically, how long do you see yourself continuing to try and commit yourself to play for USA? And then also, I guess, big picture, whether you're there or not, where do you see the USA national team going five years from now?
1: Yeah, look, luckily, like any of my major injuries, they've been outside of cricket somehow, either weightlifting or falling down or other weird things. So, whatever cricket injuries I've had, they've, you know, it's had a dislocated finger and the broken thumb. I've been able to kind of work through those. So I think at this point in my athletic career, my body knows how to handle itself. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I always pride myself actually on tours of, Oh, Hey, I didn't have to go see the doctor this weekend, or I wasn't laid out on the doctor's table. It's kind of my little secret goal, like to train myself and have my body like my aerobic and anaerobic that I've built up through my whole life. Um, I may not be the fastest on the team. I'm not going to beat a 16-year-old across the wicket right now, but I I can go forever. So I think knowing my body's strengths and limitations um, just helps me identify what I can contribute to the team. And and you're right about the freshness. It's like, yeah, it's you can say it's been, what, 11 years since I started, but... I've probably played as many games as like a you know a regular routine cricketer in another nation would have played in in one season or something. So in that aspect the sport is like still fresh. I'm still humbled by it. There's still things to learn. Um right now I'm taking it I think year by year. Like I've given myself a stern commitment to see see this through till 2022 and then reassess. I think there's so much going on right now and I'm already so committed into the process and putting the time in. Um, and yeah, time, it's a time commitment. It's challenging, and I see that on all, all the whole spectrum of our team. Even with the young kids, where I thought, God, what do you have to worry about? You're in high school. Your parents are driving you everywhere. Why are you so stressed out? And they, you know, everybody has a lot on their plate, whether it's AP classes, college recommendation letters, you know, extracurriculars. And now with the new time stealer, you know, of mobile devices and social media, it's like your discretionary time is just, is gone. And I was really inspired. Actually, Pricey brought in uh, Kirby Short from Queensland, Australian cricketer, to speak to us about time management. And, you know, she's a pro cricketer. She's also a deputy principal at a high school. And she kind of reiterated to us, if you don't have enough time, it's not important enough. And so I've been, you know, after... Having her talk to us, I actually did a calculation of all my time during the week with work and commute and sleeping, eating. I still have four hours a day of free time if I really do the math. So there is no excuse to not put my all into it, but I will admit this is the hardest it's ever been for me. Um, It's challenging to get out and go to practice. it's I'm tired from work, you know, I'm exhausted from this or that. There's a thousand excuses and I want to do it for myself now to like prove to myself you can do this even when it's not coming easy to you anymore. Like there, my whole life things pretty much came easy to me and I never really had to work on fitness or try that hard to do things. I was just enjoying it. So through the routine I would end up getting better. But this is kind of one of the first years, it's a challenge, it's something I really have to do. Um, So I want to prove that to myself, and I don't want to leave on this anticlimactic note of, oh, the pandemic ruined our season and the end, like, that's not the way to go. I think we, we all want more, and I'm not the only person on the team, you know, who's over 30 or 35 or whatever anyone would consider old for a national player, So I'm certain everyone else is sharing a similar struggle and, um, yeah, I'm taking it for this year and I think I'll reassess, um, USA cricket in five years. I think there's going to be, hopefully what I'll be seeing is like something totally different than what I'm seeing now, or like a build upon of what I'm seeing now. I think, um, with the new administration and I see a lot of real cricket brains coming through people who really know what they're doing. Um, and I just, yeah, I'm just so lucky that we got JP over here. I think, I honestly think that's what kept a lot of us around in the last couple of years to have such a sharp coach. Who's just so tuned in and switched on with the women's game Um, it's really inspiring. So if we can keep talent like that and keep that sort of caliber in USA Cricket administration and people who just have a genuine interest to grow the game, that's really what we need. And um, yeah, I think if it keeps going the way it's going, absent any sort of pandemic or unexpected event, which please don't happen again, maybe there's a zombie apocalypse on its way. I don't know. I think in five years, we're going to see You know, I want to see Geets playing in the WBBL. I want to see some of those young kids over there getting these opportunities and being on TV. And I can't wait to roll up, you know, in my casual Hawaiian shirt and watch some of these games. I'm going to be really excited. And, you know, maybe I'll get into coaching. I'm thinking about taking some certification classes. And I'm really looking forward to and accepting, like, my life after cricket as well. So it's a good balanced place to be in right now.
0: You spoke earlier about what it was like being a, a newbie and your first tours and being nervous and, and not knowing as much, having not lived through these experiences. Now you've got a decade of cricket under your belt. And as one of the veteran players in the team, what kind of role do you take on to, I guess, mentor those players like Lisa Ramjit, like a Kadali?
1: Well, it's funny, you know, how I kind of felt like the odd dog in the beginning. I feel the same now. With these kids, they're speaking a different language than me, with their TikTok and their music and everything else and all the little quips that they have. So I almost feel like just as, like, undisconnected with them as I did in the beginning. It's kind of ironic. But um, all joking aside, I think what we can really implement with the youth is, like, having the mental strength and composure to um, to stand up in these high-pressure games and, um, and trying to have fun with the sport. Uh, I I do see there's like a high stress level surrounding it. And there's a lot of expectation just knowing that there's opportunities there. So I try to just, you know, I try to give them little pointers when I can, like, Hey, you know, the coach likes it when you run in to back up the throw. do not just stand on your heels there at covers or try and give them a little bit of pointers that can help. And, but, really, try and build up that the persona of what it means to represent USA and how you want to present yourself maybe on social media and what you may not want to post or say. Um, I think a lot of it is yeah, mental composure, which my experience can help them learn, and they might not have that right now if they're just going to school and coming to practice, and everything is something else they need to get done. and I want to just try and impress upon them hey, enjoy this experience, like soak in what you can, try to have some fun, and you know, keep doing the training programs. And it's really cool to see when you start with players at a developing age, you see their bodies changing, the muscle definition moving on, people getting faster on their times. And it's just, it's really cool to see that and to have this new energy in the room which is what I think a lot of us needed of some of the squad who I think we all thought, Oh, the roster is just going to carry over from last year, you know, and maybe that was subconsciously stopping people from trying as hard as they would now. Now we have this insurgence of energy. We have an increase in numbers on the training squad. So it's, it's forcing everybody to really put their best foot out there and, you know, get a little heat beneath you that, Hey, your position's not locked in on this team and, everybody's out there gunning for it. So let's do this.
0: Time for the favorite 11. And a reminder to everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. The Dream Cricket Pavilion shop can help you fill up all your cricket kit requirements from top of the line English Willow bats made by all the top manufacturers as well as helmets, gloves, pads, jerseys, highlight DVDs, books, and more. Get 10% off all orders over $400 using coupon code DCUSA. That's DC USA. Go to shop.dreamcricket.com to take advantage of that offer today. Dream Cricket Academy is located at 400 Appgar Drive in Somerset, New Jersey, just a mile off of exit 12 on Interstate 287. For more information, call 908 938 3787 or email cricket at dreamcricket.com. Ready for the favorite 11, Erica?
1: I think I'm ready. Let's do this.
0: Let's rock and roll. All right. Your favorite roommate on tour.
1: Uh, that's got to be Uzi. Uzma Iftikhar. She's the only one that'll sneak out with me to go get pizza and wings when no one's looking. And we have our yoga practice in the hotel room.
0: The loudest snore or the messiest roommate on tour.
1: I'm going to have to take the messiest. I'm, I'm a... I'm a spreader. I bring tons of equipment. My bag is always 52 pounds, and I have to wink at the airline attendant to let me get through. Um, Yeah, I bring so much stuff, Uh, every kind of battery, so it's got to be me, the messiest one.
0: If you couldn't be a cricketer, which sport would you most want to have represented USA in?
1: I think it would be awesome to be like an Olympic skier. I've always thought that's amazing. I skied growing up. I'd be nowhere near ready to do that, but I just think that would just be a badass sport to get a medal in.
0: The best cricket ground experience that you've had as a player anywhere in the world, USA or overseas, your favorite cricket ground, not just playing on the the facility, but the lunches, the teas, the the meals that they provided, the training facilities. What was the best overall experience you've had anywhere in the world?
1: I mean, they've all been they've all been great. Most of the time it's been pouring rain, so I've been playing cards and drinking coffee in a locker room. But I'm um, thinking that the Philadelphia ground really stands out, where we did the MCC event. Uh, I think it's is it the Maryland Cricket Ground?
0: Marion, Marion, yeah, Marion Cricket Club.
1: Marion Cricket Club, and it just, it seemed so fancy. I was almost worried, you know, we can't chew gum. You can't have your cell phone. And I felt so proper, like maybe I'm in England or something. And and that afternoon, I got to share tea at lunch with Charlotte Edwards and Susie Bates because uh, Ken Atkins and I were either captaining or vice-captaining one of those matches. So we got to sit there at tea, and I remember being so nervous, like, I'm having tea with Charlotte Edwards, and she's this legend from England, and how do you take your tea? And I don't even think I said a word to her, and as you know, I can talk infinitely. But yeah, just uh, the meals, the food, just the classiness of that place, and then the field was so fancy, I remember I scuffed a hole in it out in the field with my plastic spikes, and I felt so bad I had to go put the little patch of grass back on top of the hole, and It was just amazing. So picturesque. It was really great.
0: I remember Charlotte Edwards telling me that day when I I spoke to her that she said it reminded her of Wimbledon. It's just a very, very classy, very elegant facility, Marion Cricket Club. Uh, For people who aren't aware, it's it's basically just across the street from Marion Golf Club, which is hosted U.S. Opens uh, in golf and the Marion Cricket Club. You mentioned being nervous around Charlotte Edwards. I was a hell of a lot more nervous around the Marion Cricket Club staff. Because as you said, it's it's like white glove service, very, very high society, very upper class. And I showed up to the ground, like you said, in my typical outfit with like cargo shorts, Hawaiian shirt, floppy hat. And I was getting these dirty looks while while the team had, had showered and changed to get ready to go in for the lunch and you were all very properly dressed. I'm still looking like me. And I'm um, looking at the staffs and asking like, hey, you know, am I okay and they kind of looked at me like is that all you have and so i i very hurriedly went back out to my car and, and found a pair of jeans because at least jeans having like full fully covered legs would have been a bit more acceptable than cargo shorts but yeah you know, i i still had the rest of my getup on and they kind of like let it slide once i put the jeans on but it was still like oh god this this ruffian is is trying to sneak into our very very classy facility
1: It it was then I learned, always bring khakis and closed-toed shoes on tour, even if they say you don't need it. Just always put it in the bag.
0: (laughs) Your favorite place to eat out on tour could be a fast food chain, could be a specific restaurant that you like in a particular city. What's what's your go-to place when you're out and about?
1: Oh, it's Nando's, hands down. Nando's Peri Peri Chicken. I think most people on the team would agree with that. Last time in Scotland, I think I went there three nights in a row. No shame on that.
0: <laughs> just just three. I, I'm <laughs> going every night. <laughs> yeah. There's no me. Now, kind of a, a follow-up, a 5A question, if you will. This is question question five, but 5A. If you're a Nando's person, what is your go-to Nando's marinade? Are you a lemon and herb, coconut and lemon, mango and lime, hot, medium? Or double extra hot.
1: Yeah, I'm going for the hot or the double extra. I, I love the heat. I like to make it burn. I still have some of the sauce packets that I that I brought back from Scotland. I've been saving them in my pantry. I like the heat.
0: You like the heat. I'm I'm a bit I'm lame. I'm i I'm usually a lemon and herb or a mango and lime guy. You you're going you're going for the you're going for the hot ones, the Sean Evans experience with the hot ones. Just going all the way, put that hot sauce on. The sriracha, the the Carolina Reaper.
1: Yeah, that's another tidbit I want to add. We've all learned when we go on tour, someone always brings a bottle of hot sauce. We learned after these years, somebody's always packing. It's part of the list now that we send to each other on our iPhones.
0: (laughs) Your favorite pizza topping.
1: Favorite pizza topping. Let's see. I'm going to throw the anchovies in there. I so, think it really adds a new dimension to the pie.
0: I grew up in an anchovy house. My, my dad, without fail, every single time we went to order pizza, my dad had to get anchovies on his pizza. And I stayed as far away from them as I possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he had to have them. So I, I do appreciate somebody who, who gets anchovies on their pizza. Are you a Coke or a Pepsi person?
1: Oh, I'm Coke all the way. Coke zero with coffee. That's the way to go. I got, I've got i been drinking one this whole interview right now. <laughs>
0: Coke, Coke can't beat the real thing. Yeah. Your favorite cricketer of all time.
1: I have a lot of favorites. But I'm going to go with uh, Sophie Devine, New Zealand. Uh, I love her style. I like that she also came from a hockey background. And she's just a great cricketer to watch. Really good leader, too.
0: Your favorite non-cricket athlete of all time.
1: Can I pick my uncle, Devro? Devro Rendler. He played professional soccer for the San Jose Earthquakes back in the 80s. And uh, ever since then, that guy never stops moving at family events. He's always juggling a soccer ball. He's winning all the Fourth of July races in the neighborhood. Yeah, Uncle Dev is going to be my favorite athlete.
0: You, you hid that from us all the way until now. You've got you, you've got this athletic pedigree. It's not just <laughs> not just yourself. You've got somebody else who's who's been a professional in some capacity, playing for the San Jose Earthquakes. Your favorite movie of all time?
1: Favorite movie? If I base it on the one I've watched the most, I'm gonna have to say Home Alone.
0: Kevin McAllister. You know we've had some Kevin McAllisters on the pizza question. Shabani Bosker. She's a Kevin McAllister. Cheese pizza. Stay away, Buzz. <laughs> I want my cheap pizza. And finally, your favorite show to binge watch, whether it's Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Hulu, or some other streaming platform, du jour or DVD box set, what's your go-to home on the road that you can sit for hours at a time and and never get bored?
1: The Office.
0: Now which one? The US version or the UK version?
1: I've only seen the US. So, the that's US the world. one.
0: Steve. Carell. I should do
1: it. Yeah, I should do it a service and watch the UK one. But yeah, US office. If I, if the TV was stuck on that for the rest of my life, it would still be okay.
0: <laughs> there you have it, Erica Rendler's favorite eleven. Erica, thank you so much for coming on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I really appreciate you sharing so much of your journey with us. I'll give you the final word. Anything else you want to share with people about your story, your journey, or how you feel about cricket.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you, Peter, for taking the time to talk to me. And um, yeah, I want, I want to thank Raj potty. I mean, without him, I would have never learned cricket. I would have never kept playing it and I would have never had the resiliency to handle the challenges of it. And my employers for being flexible with my travel schedule. Yeah. And I'll thank, thank my girlfriend, Anna for being so supportive of my schedule and, even picking up cricket herself to help me train. And I just want to encourage other women out there to get involved in the sport, and I'm really hoping to to get myself out there, especially when I'm done playing and I have more time to really dedicate to developing the game and getting people excited about cricket and and enjoying having fun out there and not taking it so seriously.
0: That's one of the things you emphasized all through this interview, erica which i don't think enough people appreciate cricket and any other sport it's about having fun you're supposed to have fun smile when you're out in the field and you certainly do that when you're out there playing for usa and you've done it throughout all these stories you shared today so thanks again erica rendler so much for taking us through your usa national team journey
1: oh thank you it's my pleasure
0: My thanks to Erica Renler. She's certainly one of a kind in U.S. cricket. And it's a shame in some ways that she is a one of a kind. You would hope that her pioneering journey would pave the way for many more athletes to get involved in cricket and unfortunately that recruitment effort just has not been made by many administrators over the last decade there's still time for that to change though there's no reason why there can't be many more players just like eric Renor who take that journey converting their athletic skills from a different sport into cricket well that'll do it for this week's episode of the stars and stripes cricket podcast presented by dream cricket again i want to thank all the patreon supporters out there and i encourage everybody who is listening to the show to please join subscribe on patreon share the podcast give it a rating on apple podcasts spotify anchor fm and whatever other podcast platform you're listening to out there come back for another edition of the stars and stripes cricket podcast next week until then i'm peter de pena god bless america and god bless american cricket